Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so yesterday, as of course the city of D.C. is having lots of demonstrations and protests, we wanted to have some way to sort of show our kids what peaceful protest looks like and civic participation, you know, but we, we wanted to keep them safe and find sort of a safe way for them to do this. So um, in D.C., everybody was going out at seven to like bang on pots and pans uh, and sort of make noise to show solidarity. So we let our kids go out. They banged on their pots and pans. Our neighbors did, too. It was like this beautiful moment. I felt like we were really teaching our kids what like responsible civic engagement looks like. And then the two-year-old grabbed the wooden spoon and tried to smash the window. So you have peaceful protesters and criminal provocateurs right there in our own ranks. She gave it a hard whack, but the window stood firm. I am... Very, very relieved to report, despite her legitimate best efforts to smash that window. Susan, it sounds like you need to enforce the curfew. Yeah, this is uh, before the Antifa people get to her. After they teach her a thing or two, your windows are toast. I just think Mm -hmm, you need mm -hmm. to redirect her uh, desire to smash and get her to smash the patriarchy. Exactly, exactly. You got to channel and direct the rage. Got to start somewhere. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the America is Hurting edition. I am Shane Harris uh, here in the Bloomingdale studio uh, where we have heard helicopters, not today, but the past two or three days, uh, pretty much nonstop going overhead. I don't know if you... This is really a Tammy Wittes low-flying really helicopter <laughs> kind of nightmare now scenario. Understand, all the other low-flying helicopters, they were just on a scouting operation for this, the takeover of Washington, D.C. by low-flying helicopter. You know, Tammy's conviction that there is only one low-flying helicopter and that it has a persona is almost as nuts as Shane's belief in the, that the UFOs are coming. Hey, hey, hey. Tammy's idea is way kookier than mine. Let's be very clear. <laughs> Excuse me. We now have empirical proof of low-flying <laughs> helicopters. It's just actually true. <laughs> yes, one flying around with a red cross on it, which is not usually the role for medical aircraft. When Tammy has a superhero uh, graphic novel written about her, the the big bad is going to be low-flying helicopter. <laughs> I should be so lucky. That would be awesome. Well, we are here coming to you in week. I have lost track 14, 15, 12, 27. I don't know. Uh, it seems like two crises have collided, but I am here with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. What do you mean two crises? It's three crises. 
Oh, we're going to get to all of them. Don't worry. If we really, I'm not sure we have room for more than three on this show. We got three segments. We have a pan. <laughs> it's true. One for each crisis. We have a pandemic, and then we have uh, the uh, the protests uh, uh, and the response to them that have erupted, which I'm counting as maybe one. Maybe those are, are separate things. What's your third? Am I missing one? Uh, the greatest economic catastrophe in oh, the country's that. history since the Great Depression. Ben, I even have worry. a fourth crisis, which what? is Donald Trump is the president of the United States. That's that's actually it's just true. the accelerator. That's like when you have a fire and you have an accelerant, that's the accelerant. That's sort of like, I mean, I think you guys would say that's like sort of like what's like the stuff that's in the cells, like the protoplasm. It's just like the it's like the goo. It's like the goo holding things together. It's just the goo. The goo is always there. The goo tearing things apart. <laughs> sure. On the podcast this week, Americans have taken to the streets in dozens of cities to protest the death of George Floyd, police brutality, and systemic racism. President Trump has focused his attention on looting and violence, which he calls domestic terror, and has insisted that governors dominate the protesters. We are going to talk about the role of the military and the Insurrection Act, which you may have been hearing about if you've been brushing off your uh, your history textbooks maybe this week, uh, the role of Attorney General Bill Barr and the Justice Department, and President Trump's use of other federal forces as America heads into another day of public demonstration amidst a still raging pandemic and economic crisis and all the rest. Um, so we're going to start with the military and the Insurrection Act. Ben, the president has, and he did on Monday in this speech in the Rose Garden, uh, which I think we're going to talk a lot about the events around Monday evening here in this segment too, uh, to deploy the military to states if governors can't control the protests to his satisfaction. Uh, the Defense Secretary Mark Esper described in a conference call with governors public streets as a battle space. Uh, Monday evening, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, was walking D.C. streets in camouflage fatigues, saying that he was inspecting units. Uh, so the military is engaged here in some way, but let's establish the legal basis for it. There's been a lot of talk about posse comitatus, as there always is when we talk about the military operating inside the United States and also the Insurrection Act. With regards to military forces in the U.S., what does the president have the authority to do and what has he done? All right. So here is the 35,000 foot overview of this question standing on one foot. Now we can dive deeper on any aspect of it, but the big picture is the following. First of all, the reason there are a lot of troops in the District of Columbia and fewer everywhere else is that the rules are different in Washington where the president uh, you know, where, which is under direct federal rule than it is in states which are sovereign in and of themselves. Uh, and so the rules in the district are, are pretty different uh, and much more permissive of presidential action. The rules everywhere else are, you know, the army, the, the, the military is not generally allowed under the Posse Comitatus Act to play a a law enforcement role in exercising police powers without, and this is the part that everybody always leaves out, without an act of Congress permitting it. Uh, and so the significance of the Insurrection Act is that the Insurrection Act is a law 
that under certain circumstances does permit it. Now, broadly speaking, those circumstances are threefold. One is if a governor requests the president's intervention, uh, the president is entitled to send aid in the form of federal uh, law enforcement authorities to uh, federal military authorities to assist governor in restoring order uh, in response to a failure of law and order. That's like what happened in in California during the Rodney King riots. The governor requested military assistance. The president sent it. Situation number two is if the president determines that federal rights are not being protected by state authorities. And so this is similar. This is, for example, what uh, President Eisenhower did uh, during the civil rights movement. You know, you said, you know, state authorities refuse to do their jobs and people's federally protected rights are are being infringed. The president sends in troops to uh, protect the federal constitutional rights of the individuals in question or the groups of people in question. Third category, which is, I think, the one that is uh, most uh, significant for present purposes, is if the president determines that law and state law enforcement is inadequate to restore order under state law, uh, he can send in troops uh, under the Insurrection Act. And that is uh, the power that I presume the president has threatened to invoke here. But importantly, he's threatened to invoke it. He hasn't invoked it. And it's a kind of classic Trump thing. You kind of beat your chest and say, I have the absolute power to do something, but you don't actually do it. Because if you do it, then you own the situation. So that's a sort of broad overview. Uh, there are a lot of details that that sort of ignores. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Susan, Susan, go ahead. And maybe as you're talking too, let's try and get to the question too of whether he can in fact send these troops into states as he claims he's going to do. But go ahead. Yeah, I think this final point that um, that Ben makes about if that Trump is really only threatened to do this stuff and actually hasn't done it, and that one reason he might not want to actually do things like invoke the Insurrection Act or provisions of it uh, is because he doesn't want to be accountable and responsible. It's much easier for him to criticize criticize governors for their failures, and so um, you know that is a reason to be a little bit sort of skeptical uh, about whether or not he actually is considering doing this. Um, I do want to sort of sound a note that I think there's a risk here of sort of over-legalizing the discussion um, and sort of focusing very intensely on the question of, can a president do this? Can the president do this specific thing? As if that's sort of uh, the end of the discussion and a little bit it can gloss over the underlying issue, which is that just because a president can do something, and these are contexts in which the president does have, you know, pretty robust and expansive authorities when he really decides to, decides to exercise them, doesn't mean that the president should do something. And I do think we should be really, really clear that regardless of the sort of very specific applications of various laws and authorities, um, for the president to use the threat of the United States military against the American people who are exercising constitutionally protected rights, that's totally unacceptable. For the president to 
apparently order or the attorney general to apparently order on the president's behalf the clearing of Lafayette Square where peaceful protesters were peacefully protesting uh, using excessive force so the president can have a photo op or really for any reason, no matter what the president was doing, even if he just wanted to take a nice evening stroll. Um, that is an abuse of power and sort of an, an assault on uh, you know core American values. And, and I think we should sort of anchor the discussion there. You know, Ben's sort of point about, you know, this is back to the to the absolute president has the absolute right. You know, I do think there is a reason why we're going to see Trump really, really trying to lean in to this narrative, to this sort of debate and, and to keep the locus of the conversation here on sort of his emergency powers, his military powers. Um, and that's because 10 days ago, the conversation we were having in this country was about something over which the president had no control, which is the pandemic, no ability, no no statutory authorities, nothing he could really do. And, and sort of the ineptness and powerlessness and sort of weakness of his administration was really laid bare. Um, and this is an area in which the president has lots and lots of authorities and he can do the thing that he really appears to sort of cherish the most about the office of the presidency, which is you know, make declarations, make decisions and sort of cram it down the throats of, of his critics and say, well, there's nothing you can do to me. Um, and, and so that's why I think he is there is going to be an incentive for him to sort of continually try to test the boundaries and and create a conversation in this space, because I, I just think it's one where, uh, you know, he, he is he is happier and more comfortable being. I think that's a really important point, Susan, and I want to expand on this idea that we shouldn't over-legalize because, um, look, we have on this podcast and and you, Susan, and Ben, and your work, and, you know, we've all focused a lot over the last three and a half years on the legal and institutional guardrails that contain a man who feels, who acts without restraint and without an understanding of the responsibility of, of his office and without concern for the impact of his actions or even for the act of governing. We are now, in my view, in this week, we are now in a different phase. We are in a phase where we have seen those institutional guardrails and by and large legal guardrails fail. One after the other. And so what is coming into play now with the protests, but also with other things like uh, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff writing an op-ed, which is something he's never done, you know, against the president. We are now seeing the informal guardrails of America's political culture, of America's civic society, those are the things that are now available to us and are coming into operation. And we have to hope to God that the people who wield those tools, ourselves included, are wise enough and strategic enough in wielding them that they have impact. I think we have to take the man seriously this is what he does. He's He bullies people. He threatens people to get what he wants. And so he threatened the governors with the military, as Susan said. He loves to use the military. He'd love to use it here. He hates feeling out of control. Using the military will help him feel in control. And so I don't think that this was just threats. I think this is something we have to take very seriously. And I think the evidence for that is what Defense Secretary Mike Esper 
did this morning. Mike Esper, who has been a complete toady for the president, who walked with him to St. John's Church for that photo op through the tear gas left behind after the protesters were dispersed. And today, Mike Esper made a point of going into the Pentagon press room, which, let's remember, has been barely used in this administration, step up to the podium and said to the press, I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act. It's a matter of last resort and only in the most dire of situations. And we are not in one of those situations now. That was a very strong, very decisive statement from the Secretary of Defense in direct opposition to what the president said the day before. And there's only one reason why Mike Esper, who has no backbone, would do that. And that's because the uniform officer corps of the Pentagon sat him down and said, we don't want to do this. This is wrong. And you are going to see resignations of flag officers throughout the building if you do this. That is my hypothesis. It's speculative. But I just can't think what else would have induced him to do that. And that tells me that the military took the president seriously. You know, Tammy, I think you're right on on some of that. And just to reinforce something, too, I mean, Esper was saying in this conference call talking about public streets as a battle space, and he caught hell for it. And the press, the, the Pentagon spokesperson had to come out and talk about how, well, it's the parlance of, I think, what did she put it as people who practice, she didn't say the art of war, but it was something like the craft of war. And I mean, just, and of course, I mean, he was sitting here talking about Americans in the street. Uh, and then you had helicopters flying over people trying to disperse them on Monday night. Uh, you know, it was really, I mean, these were images out of, you know, something that we're used to seeing, you know, in revolutions in foreign countries. And I, and I think to put a fine point on you, you talking about Mike Mullen's uh, op-ed, which he wrote for The Atlantic uh, uh, the other day. I just want to read one passage of it because it's directly on point with what you were just talking about. He said, I remain confident in the professionalism of our men and women in uniform. They will serve with skill and with compassion. They will obey lawful orders. But I am less confident in the soundness of the orders they will be given by this commander in chief. And I am not convinced on the conditions on our streets as bad as they are risen the level that justifies a heavy reliance on troops. He even goes into this piece, I think, and sort of directly questioning whether or not the military leadership is really going to stand up to the president. So I agree with you. I mean, I think this is one of those moments where, you know, we're seeing the kinds of people with the sort of experience that we expect they could bring to bear in a moment like this to say, hold on a second, this is abnormal, this is strange. And Susan, I go back to thinking about a tweet that you sent out a day or so ago. You know, where is Jim Mattis in this? Right. Where oh, is please. John Kelly? Oh, please. Right. <laughs> but this is the question. Like this is like, if this is not the moment for people, you know, like Admiral Mullen and like the former secretary Mattis to stand up or like you anonymous. Know, what there isn't one or on Well, anonymous. Who cares? Anonymous is at this point didn't sell many books either. But, you know, I really think this is the point at which. You know, we've talked a lot about when is this moment they would stand up. And I genuinely think that if it's not this, it will be never. Yeah, I actually I, I meant something a little more cynical with that tweet. Um, of course, I don't expect Jim Mattis to speak out and and sort of I uh, I second Tammy's guffaw on uh, on the suggestion. Nor do I think if he spoke out at this point, it would make any bit of difference. That said, I think it's really worth noting that this very very honorable man who reassured all of us that he would know the moment when he saw it and he would speak out. Um, I think the fact that we are in this moment and people like him 
remain silent um, is a reason to just disabuse ourselves from that particular fairy tale moving forward. This idea of these honorable people who have these lines that will not be crossed. I, I think that what the message of the past, you know, really 10 or 11 weeks and, and certainly the past, you know, five to 10 days um, is that, uh, you know, whenever we go back and sort of read the, the various op-eds from January and February 2017, the voices that were viewed as hysterical and overwrought and being extreme, those were uh, those ended up being far more accurate as a predictive matter about the genuine risks here. Um, and one reason I, I think there were not more of those voices or so many people sort of sought this uh, comforting middle ground was because they really, really deluded themselves about the role that these particular individuals, um, you know, could play in our institutional ecosystem. And um, we have some like very immediate emergencies to address, but in the long term, we're really going to have to think about what that means and what that means as a statutory matter um, and whether or not we need to make really, really dramatic changes to the way we think about the essential sort of authorities of, of the president of the United States. Yeah, I I just want to object to letting the Jim Mattises off the hook, which is I know not what either Susan or Tammy is trying to do. They're sort of trying to do the opposite, but I I actually don't ever want to stop expecting of them that they will come forward and do the right thing and talk about their experiences. And, you know, I think it may be that we don't uh, realistically expect to see it anymore, but that doesn't mean we should ever let go of the expectation that people who are honorable will will in fact behave that way. And the reason for that is because if we do, that actually belittles uh, the steps that people like Admiral McRaven and uh, General Mullins uh, and others have done, which is to do exactly the thing that we are criticizing Mattis for. So I actually want us to all retain our sense of shock that Jim Mattis has been as quiet as he has. I'm not shocked. I'm just uh, grimly disappointed in a fairly consistent manner. Well, then, you know, situation normal, right? Right. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, all right. Let's talk about somebody who has certainly not been quiet uh, since he became attorney general and certainly not this week, Bill Barr. Um, a guy who who really should know when it's time to shut up. <laughs> Oh, but I mean, this administration's probably filled with people you could say the same about. Uh, Susan, Bill Barr came out over the weekend, this was on Saturday or Sunday, and said that the protests and the rioting were the work of far-left radicals using, quote-unquote, Antifa-like tactics, uh, of course, referring to the anti-fascist label, which is more of a style than it is an organization. And we reported at the Post, and we've talked about this a little bit in the first segment, that Barr was the one who gave the order to disperse those protesters Monday outside Lafayette Park so that Trump could walk across the street and hold a Bible in front of St. John's Church. I will note here that the Secret Service, and we think of the Secret Service police who were involved in that disbursement, does not report to the attorney general. I'm not aware of what authorities 
Barr is operating under when he gives an order to disperse protesters or expand security zones. So um, what the hell is Bill Barr up to here? Yeah, so I, I think this gets to sort of the uh, one of the fundamental conundrums of this administration, which is questions of who gave what orders to which agencies and which officers to do what under what authority, and thus the ultimate question of lawfulness is a heavily fact-dependent one. And there are plausible scenarios under which uh, there is a legitimate security purpose for clearing Lafayette Park. None of them existed at the time. And because we have a Department of Justice and an administration that is so lacking in credibility, so willing to openly lie, including the U.S. Park Police, a statement suggesting that protesters were throwing frozen bottles and bricks and that was what caused, uh, you know, Park Police to advance um, when, you know, Millions of people were watching it in real time on live television when it happened, not to mention dozens of reporters um, who reported from the scene and, and documented it, um, you know, and, and can speak to the fact that, that that's just a lie. Um, and this is where I think we get to sort of the crisis of Bill Barr, and that's that Bill Barr um, isn't twice as smart as Donald Trump. Uh, Bill Barr is a thousand times smarter than Donald Trump, and he has assumed a role Role in this administration to legalize and shape the president's impulses and to facilitate them through the language of the law. And I think there's a, there was a little bit of a hope that he would do that by actually making them lawful, um, right? Scale them back and change them. And, and maybe we didn't love the policy goals, but but he would make them fit within the four corners of the wall of, of, of the law. And I think what we're seeing here, both with sort of his suggestion about Antifa and uh, and sort of these re these representations about what occurred in Lafayette Park, um, and and also sort of it goes to to the core of questions underlying the Insurrection Act is that um, whenever we're dealing dealing with authorities that ultimately rely on discretion or determinations about uh, the status of particular organizations or the existence of particular organizations or the intelligence reporting or factual basis uh, you know, for, for, uh, for Department of Justice decisions or the president's decisions. Um, we've seen again and again that the president is able to make and, and Barr is able to make these sort of bad faith assertions that aren't tethered to fact and that it actually becomes almost impossible to review that, that it, it's sort of it's unreviewable discretion in lots and lots of cases. Um, it doesn't make it any less lawless. It doesn't make it any less illegal just because there isn't this corrective mechanism. And so, um, you know, Bill Barr, who could have played a role in calming the situation, who certainly has a role to play in speaking to the American people about police brutality, about racial justice and policing moving forward. If somebody wants to actually address the substance of these protests and maybe start to calm the nation, the person we would expect to be out in public talking about uh, you know, criminal justice reforms and what the Department of Justice intends to be doing, you know, uh, the attorney general who we would usually expect to be talking about consent decrees with, with police departments that use neck holds, all of these various tools that are available to immediately reduce tensions and address serious policy issues much more rapidly than state governments or, or the legislative process possibly can. 
he's not even bothering to pretend to do any of that and instead is just helping to, to helping Trump to sort of find ways to further inflame things. And, um, you know, it, it's it's a disgraceful and, and pretty shocking thing for Bill Barr to put his rather form- formidable mind to, you know, but but that's the situation we're in. And, and I think it's a reason we should be really, really alarmed about where things go from here. Ben. I agree with that. I I I think one of the interesting questions that Barr has got to be facing right now is, uh, you know, just as we were talking about what kind of uh, rebellion Esper uh, was likely to face within the military for his behavior, what has been the reaction inside the Justice Department to Barr's latest participation in in this, and this comes against a backdrop in which, you know, unlike the military, which has been relatively shielded from the most extreme excesses of of the president, you know, the Justice Department has not, and uh, a lot of people in the department are already reeling from the interventions in the Flynn case and in the Roger Stone case, and from the sort of loosing of John Durham on the FBI. And so it's against that background that the attorney general kind of wanders out uh, into Lafayette Square and orders uh, the Secret Service over which he has no authority to disperse a crowd, which it does violently so that the president can have a photo op with a Bible in front of a church that doesn't want him. And you know that's a that's a pretty remarkable thing for an attorney general to do and it will not have gone unnoticed in the justice department and it you know again goes to this kind of crisis that the department has been facing for the last several years ben can i ask you a question about bill barr i i don't know if this is fair or not i'm such an authority on the subject <laughs> okay right what is in his heart, yeah, Ben? Yeah, because because clearly, if anybody knows the, the, the heart and ways and and is a is an authority on what you should think of Bill Barr, it is I. But sure, go Impeccable ahead. Impeccable question, and I'll give you some bullshit. Okay, so I'll throw this question open. How is that? Um, but. I was really, I have to say, I'm mystified having read the sort of insider account of how he went out and, you know, decided that he needed to tell them to go ahead and do this stuff so that the president would have time to walk across the square or whatever. When I put that together with the way he has played the issue of reviewing all the prosecutorial judgments around the Russia stuff and the way he's played the issue of reviewing the intelligence on the in, on the Russia investigation this reading the this account of what happened in Lafayette Square really made me think like this guy this isn't about his bizarre uh, outlier interpretation of the constitution and the law this is a guy with a sense of mission that goes beyond that that actually relates to Donald Trump personally. At least that's what it suggested to me. Is that crazy? Uh, So I don't really want to speculate about what's in his heart because I actually don't know. And, you know, this is somebody who 
I thought I had a pretty good read on based on, you know, having watched his career over a very long period of time and, you know, kind of knowing him a little bit. And I was completely wrong about some very basic aspects of who he was. I, by the way, was not the only one. A lot of, a lot of people who, you know, the Preet Bharara's and, you know, had very much the same impression that I did. And, you know, the Jim Comey's for that matter, you know, and we, we all got him basically wrong. And so at this point, what percentage of this is, you know, true belief about, uh, you know, marinating in the Fox News ecosystem over a long period of time? What percentage of it is some deep belief in Donald Trump? What percentage of it is just hatred of liberals? I, I don't know. Um, and I, when he says that stuff about Antifa, I don't know if he, he may believe that. I, I, I don't, I don't know how much of this is cynical and how much of it is, 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 I don't know what to call it. Um, Ideological. Or kind of uh, delusional. Well, I'll take a stab at psychoanalyzing him and then Susan, you can, you can, we can tag team him. I, I just want to go back to the oral history that Bill Barr gave some years ago to the Miller Center at UVA. And I've talked about this before, but if you go back and you really read what he has said, it seems to me if we are believing what he said in that moment, uh, this is, of course, not when he was attorney general. I really do think that he believes that there is essentially like a liberal cadre or a liberal cabal that is comprised of Democrats on the Hill, the academy, cultural elites, uh, and to a certain degree, the career bureaucracy of the federal government. And he goes on at length about that, um, <clears throat> talking about uh, at one point, he says, I think the other big problem is this notion that is gaining currency, that there's something wrong about political officials reviewing cases. Actually, this has largely been precipitated by the liberal critics of the Justice Department and by the Democrats on the Hill. So there he is seeing what I, I think, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, is a fairly bipartisan consensus that political officials should not be administering justice, which is, of course, what's happened in the administration, and saying that, no, no, this is perfectly fine. It's just the liberals that think it's a problem. Uh, I've known people like Bill Barr. I've written about people like Bill Barr, and they have a view, I think, that there is this establishment on the left that has been running things. And I think one of the things that they are pleased about being in power is dismantling it. And I, I really do think that Bill Barr believes that, you know, there are elements running around the streets like the Weather Underground or something from the 1960s, and that this is just sort of a, a leftist kind of flank that has been lurking and waiting for its moment in the shadows and now is coming out because maybe it thinks that the administration is back on its heels with the coronavirus pandemic, right? It couldn't have anything possibly to do with hundreds of thousands of Americans being very frustrated that the police are killing black people. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I think it's even, you know, sort of a step further. It's that uh, people like Barr believe um, such conspiracy theories about the other side um, that they use it to uh, excuse and justify their own uh, sort of bad behavior. So I'd sort of liken it to uh, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings in which he was plainly lying about things like, uh, you know, how much he drank in high school, right? And things that were just verifiable untruths that were dismissed by conservatives, not by really defending them as being 
true. But by saying, well, the other side was being, you know, so bad and the the, the actual accusation, uh, you know, of sexual assault wasn't true. And therefore, it's not a big deal for somebody to lie under oath. And I think sort of a similar psychology occurs for people like Bill Barr, who, who basically uh, tell themselves a story that all these things that they're doing, even though it doesn't pass their own uh, stated standards of sort of objectivity or, or Department of Justice values, um, that it's justified because it's some sort of restoring of, of order or sort of an eye for an eye. You know, at the end of the day, we, we can psychoanalyze Bill Barr kind of till the cows come home. I, I do think that one reasonable statement, though, is that through his actions, Bill Barr has not just forfeited the presumption of good faith. He has earned the presumption of bad faith. And that it actually isn't reasonable at this point to say, well, you know, maybe Bill Barr really thinks this and really maybe Bill Barr really means it. Maybe he really believes this is the best interpretation of the law. I actually think he has actively earned a, a presumptive suspicion, a presumptive assumption uh, that he is advancing something for political reasons rather than legitimate sort of reads of the law. And the real shame about that is that that presumption can't really be cordoned off to just Bill Barr and just the attorney general. It's a presumption that seeps into the rest of the Department of Justice, creates a situation in which the Department of Justice is no longer entitled to presumptions of good faith and is beginning to earn presumptions of bad faith. We're seeing this play out uh, in the in the Flynn Sullivan, uh, you know, sort of debacle, I guess we can call it. It at this point. Um, and that has really, really significant and serious long-term consequences and consequences that will remain even after Bill Barr is gone, whether it's in November or January or four more years from now. All right. Let's move on to another administration official that people may not know much about. Um, he is acting in his capacity, as many people in the Homeland Security Department are. Uh, Acting Commissioner of Customs and Border Patrol, Mark Morgan, who Tammy tweeted on Monday, quote, CBP personnel have deployed to the National Capital Region to assist law enforcement partners. These protests, which he put in quotation mark, have developed into chaos and acts of domestic terrorism by groups of radicals and agitators at CBP is answering the call and will work to keep D.C. safe. So from Morgan here, this is not merely an announcement of a law enforcement action. It's clearly a political statement and one that is echoing the president and the attorney general, as we've just discussed. So here we have another senior law enforcement official promising to use the power of the state to quell protests and again, labeling Americans as terrorists. Um, What's interesting about this to me is that we don't usually think of the CBP as having much role at all uh, in these kinds of things about, you know, monitoring protests, certainly not coming in to, to move protesters much less, you know, actively fighting terrorists on the streets. That's not their job. So what does it mean that we're hearing this from the acting head of that agency? And then we'll talk a little bit later in the segment about what we're seeing from other law enforcement agencies and what they might be doing as well. Right. So I have to note, too, that he tweeted those words along with a photograph. I mean, there's a lot of pride in the tone of this tweet. And the photograph was of apparently CPB personnel in full riot gear standing at attention in the atrium of the Ronald Reagan building. The Ronald Reagan building, 
hosts the Agency for International Development. It's, you know, people get married in that atrium. It's like, you know, in the in the heart of downtown Washington, D.C. And so it was an incredibly incongruous image. And it was also in and of itself, the tweet was a manifestation of how political labeling of legitimate protests as uh, enemy was leading to the militarization of a political disagreement in our country and leading to the militarization of Washington, D.C., of the capital of the country, of the city where I live. So it was disturbing at multiple levels. And the fact that, you know, this this guy, Mark Morgan, used the kind of language you quoted, Shane, the protests aren't even real protests. They've devolved into terrorism. Radicals, agitators are the people who are engaging this. All of that is highly political language. In fact, you know, in some ways, even more extreme than what the president has said. The president at least acknowledged that some people were upset about the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police. And why do I think that it's so important? It's, you know, I don't want to get into what's CPB's official role and why is it doing law enforcement in Washington? Because I think that to a certain extent, you know, as we've just been discussing, if they can find a way to do this, they'll do it. So it's not about what they're allowed to do at this point. It's about the attitudes and capabilities they bring to the job. And I think more than any other non-military component of uh, the federal government that has coercive power. So, you know, the FBI and ATF and all these other armed agencies, more than any of the rest of them, I think CPB has developed a culture that it is fighting a war. It's fighting a war for to keep people out of our borders who shouldn't be coming in. It's fighting a war on terrorism. It's fighting a war on illegal immigration. It's fighting a war on drug smuggling. But it is highly militarized. And why does this matter? You know, it matters because these guys cannot come into a city and operate in a law enforcement role in a way that will be restrained or appropriate for the very same reason that many of our urban police departments are having trouble operating in their assigned role in a way that's restrained and appropriate. There was a great interview um, that Ezra Klein did this week with Patrick Skinner, who's a former CIA officer and now is a police officer in Savannah, Georgia. And Patrick's on Twitter. If you don't follow him, you should. He has a lot to say about the difference between war and policing and what's gone wrong in American policing. He said in this interview, people want so badly for this to be an issue of training, but we train for our goals and his criticism is that police in the United States have been told that they're fighting a war on crime. So he says, our goal is a war on crime and we're getting a war. I saw the war on terror. It was horrible. Now I see the war on crime and it's just as bad. So, you know, I, I think that um, we, we created the CPB. We created DHS in the wake of 9-11 and we gave it a war mindset. And now we're reaping the whirlwind for that. Susan. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, look, I, I agree with Tammy that um, it should still be shocking to see this sort of openly politicized and also just 
sort of inflammatory rhetoric coming from federal officials. Um, uh, you know, it's it's really really disturbing stuff, and and it's it's also interplaying. Um, you know, CBP deploying their officers and the authorities under which they're operating is interplaying with a number of um, of sort of other uh, circumstances that are playing out in the district, including um, the deployment of, of course, national guardsmen, and then also um, apparently individuals who work or who are being uh, sort of deployed by by the Department of Justice. Um, DOJ has made some indication that they might work for the Bureau of Prisons, but essentially these are nominally uniformed, heavily armed individuals that are being sent out onto the onto the streets of Washington, D.C., and are, when being asked by reporters, not just refusing to show a badge or personally identify themselves, but also refusing to say what organization or agency they work for. And, and in some cases, they've told reporters um, that they've been instructed not to disclose the agency they work for. Um, you know, that's something that should be really, really alarming to people. Um, I spent some time sort of trying to look into what are the rules and obligations of federal law enforcement officers to actually affirmatively disclose these things. And um, I, I think the preliminary answer is that there really are not many, um, at least until they start doing things like performing arrests or conducting, you know, sort of seizures and, and things like that. Um, but sort of going to, to, I think, Tammy's underlying point as well, um, you know, talk about modeling uh, sort of the worst of what people are protesting against. So instead of using examples like Patrick Skinner, um, you know, who talks about uh, being being a police officer as being about serving your neighbors, taking that ethos of sort of protecting and serving, uh, of, of wanting to participate in a system of trust and accountability as part of policing. Instead, you know, failure, having having officers who refuse to even say who they work for, while they're heavily armed and, and in some cases quite intimidating of the, of the American public, that reduces accountability and it continues to sort of create this perception that, you know, these are not people who are there to protect the American people. These are U.S. forces against the American people or specifically the American people who happen to not agree with the current president. Um, and the optics of that are just so terrible and inflammatory um, and serve no function or purpose. Um, and it's it's just it, it seems like such a small thing in, in the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, but but I, I do think we should sort of focus on this question of, um, you know, how are we seeing law enforcement and federal law enforcement actually act and respond in, 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 in this moment of crisis and and the various ways in which they are proving protesters right and exacerbating the tensions and concerns? Well, Ben, to that point, let me ask you, I mean, are there authorities that the president has to use the DEA or the FBI, I mean, in ways that we might not traditionally think of? And what I guess what I'm getting at here to some degree is, you know, is there something kind of like a toolkit sitting on the shelf that he can pull down to start increasing surveillance and investigation of people engaged in civil disobedience or just straight out, you know, protesting pursuant to their First Amendment rights. Is there that kind of arsenal that he can uh, deploy that he has not yet? Yes and no. Um, so uh, as we have seen, it is possible to uh, redeploy CBP people as riot control, right? Or Bureau of Prisons people, or, uh, you know, according to the Daily Beast, there was a reassignment of a bunch of DEA personnel 
outside of the drug enforcement arena in response to this. So moving people around to different functions is very doable. And, you know, there are limits on what you can do in that regard, but, uh, you know, there aren't a lot. You can detail people from agency to agency. You can create memos that, like, allow... Uh, shared functions and that sort of thing. So it's th- that's pretty doable. What you can't do is change the substantive law, right? And say, you know, and you and of course you can change priorities. You can say, you know, yesterday we were chiefly concerned about cybersecurity and uh, you know healthcare fraud, and to, now we're we're devoting law enforcement resources to investigating. Uh, I don't know, uh, crimes associated with interstate uh, incitement of rioting, right? That is perfectly lawful. What you can't really do is say, I'm giving law enforcement a whole lot of new authority without an act of Congress. There are some authorities you can invoke in emergency situations, but basically surveillance authority is something you kind of have the power to do in the context of investigations, and you can't really increase it. You can increase use of it, but you can't increase the scope of the authority situationally with a few important exceptions. Like, for example, there are emergency surveillance authorities that you can use in some situations. I can think of a few of those. But by and large, the substance of the authorities kind of are what they are. I'd I'd be curious if Susan disagrees with that. No, I, I agree with all of that, although it harkens back to sort of some of the core concern here with not with sort of a lack of transparency. It's one thing to clearly state what you are doing, who is operating and under what authorities to place that in writing to be transparent in advance so that people can understand uh, what what these various officers are permitted to do, what their function is, what laws they're operating uh, pursuant to. There's always this sort of fear and concern, and, and I think it's uh, come to pass again and again in the Trump administration, that actually what happens is they just make the decision. They order, Bill Barr orders the Secret Service to clear Lafayette Square. They send out CBP, and then afterwards they worry about the specific legal details. And so So the fact that, yeah, probably there are authorities that can allow various forms of deployment doesn't justify failing to articulate that both internally and also publicly in advance. That's a core element of democratic accountability. I guess one concern here, too, and you guys tell me if you disagree, is, you know, we saw in the Bush administration uh, you know, terrorism surveillance programs, and particularly the Stellar Wind program, enacted, and and in a way, and under an architecture that at least at the beginning, I think, a lot of senior officials and intelligence officials believed was appropriately calibrated, although unconventional. And as Mike Hayden at the NSA liked to put at the time, you know, playing right up to the line so that you have chalk on your cleats, uh, but eventually was pulled back when you had, you know, someone with the intellectual. Uh, uh, stamina and scruples of Jack Goldsmith in the Office of Legal Counsel, essentially calling foul on it. I think when what we're we're getting at here with the way that this administration just switches people's jobs and gives out orders that they're probably 
uh, not really supposed to be giving out, and we've got long history of this, is isn't the fear that the president will just say, you know, to the FBI, I don't care, wiretap them all. Uh, or, you know, monitor their emails. I mean, you know what I mean? I'm just saying I'm sort of, you know, do, being outlandish to the point of for, for making a point. And who is going to blink and say, sorry, Mr. President, that's actually illegal. Anyone? <laughs> I mean, am I overreacting or is that that seems to me no, like that is the concern here? I don't think you're overreacting. And one thing that I do think we should note is the complete and utter silence of Republicans. Right. And that to the extent that that ultimately political accountability is is kind of a big thing here. Um, you know, I, I think there is r- like real cause to, of concern, not just in like the initial actions that are being taken, which are inc- incredibly alarming and disturbing, but also kind of the the crickets, because that, you know, what we know again and again is that Trump just ups the ante and and, and pushes the limits more ding, and ding, more. Ding, 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 ding. That's the key point, right? The remember, Richard Nixon did not resign because there were impeachment articles passed by the House Judiciary Committee against him. Richard Nixon resigned because a group of Republican senators, uh, including Barry Goldwater, went to the White House and said, you will not get significant or even Republican votes in the Senate in an impeachment trial. Your, your position is eroded. It is ultimately the people in your own party willing to buck the political interest in supporting their side that is the restraint. And without that, particularly for somebody whose attitudes and, you know, whose, whose vision of the world is pretty monomaniacal and, and, you know, one might even say sociopathic, that is the only constraint is, you know, will your footing, the earth fall out from underneath you. And as long as Republican senators are willing to look at what happened the other day and pretend they didn't see it or pretend that they, you know, they don't fully have all the information. And Tom Cotton's willing to look at that situation and say, even when corrected by David French, that uh, they should give no quarter to uh, rioters. Uh, You know, the president doesn't have any incentive to uh, moderate his behavior or or to change anything. Twas always thus. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, ben, do you want to go first? My object lesson is a very thick deposition transcript given by uh, Susan and my uh, former colleague, Jim Baker, uh, and current colleague in, in lawfare, Jim had to testify about the origins of the Russia investigation and a whole bunch of matters related there too. And I believe it's actually, the deposition is so long that it has, it's in two volumes. And at the beginning of volume two of, or section two of, of, of his deposition transcript, there is a lengthy discussion between uh, Jim and a very inquisitive Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows, who actually do an excellent job in their desire to prove that Rod Rosenstein uh, is some kind of uh, leader of a deep state conspiracy in getting Jim Baker to tell the story of what happened when Rod Rosenstein volunteered to wear a wire in his conversations with the president and uh, suggested that 
cabinet secretaries were ready to invoke the 25th Amendment. And I mention this today only because Rod Rosenstein testified today before the Senate Judiciary Committee and was asked by Maisie Hirano, senator from Hawaii, about these two incidents and claimed that they didn't happen. And so I just want to say this comes in the face of statements by not just this lengthy sworn statement by Jim Baker, but also uh, contemporaneous memos by Andy McCabe and Andy McCabe's subsequent interviews at the time his book came out. And so I just want to say my object lesson is a serious contradiction in the record about what happened here. And I think it is one that is uh, worth understanding how this discrepancy came to exist. It sounds like Rod Rosenstein should have read Jim Baker's deposition. It sounds to me like Rod Rosenstein, Rod Rosenstein may have been being trying to be very clever in how he answered certain questions. And I wouldn't want to suggest anything more than that. Well, definitely don't try to be clever when answering questions under oath. Just ask Michael Flynn. Although those weren't clever answers. Um, Tammy, your object. Okay, my object is something that I expect a lot of our listeners may already have seen. But I'm bringing it to your attention just in case you haven't and also using it to make a little bit of a point. The It is a video that was tweeted out yesterday by uh, an NBC reporter in Los Angeles. It's a video of the actress Kiki Palmer talking to a National Guardsman who was guarding a post alongside the protest march in which Kiki Palmer was marching. And over the course of about two, two and a half minutes, she speaks to him with passion, beautifully, thoughtfully, pleading with him and his National Guard colleagues to march alongside the demonstrators. She says to them, look, we have a president who's trying to incite a race war. Our borders are closed. We can't leave. We have people here that need your help. This is when you're supposed to stand together with the community. We need you. March with us. And um, eventually, the National Guardsmen don't uh, agree to march because they can't leave their assigned post, but they do kneel with the protesters, and it's a very, very moving moment. Why am I um, bringing this up? Um, not just because uh, it's an example of these folks, even though they are in uniform carrying weapons, you know, in this role that seems very oppositional and confrontational, they are humans and they are Americans and you can speak to them and they can even respond. There is that. But there's something else here as well, which is um, the power of nonviolent protest. As someone who watched nonviolent protests across the Arab world in 2011 and in the years since, someone who studied the power of civil society activism in authoritarian countries. One of the biggest lessons is that when you're marching, you don't want this, to treat the security forces who are sent out by the state to confront you. You don't want to treat them like the enemy. In fact, if you can, you want to try and co-opt them. You want to speak to them as fellow citizens and as friends. 
you know, if you can do that, you make it harder for them to coercively shut down the protest. And if you can do that in an authoritarian state, often you have pulled out from under a regime, one of its main pillars, one of the main pillars keeping it in power. So what Kiki Palmer did here, I don't know if she did it instinctively or if she has read some of the wonderful handbooks by civic activists that have been published in the last 10 years or so, but she uh, exhibited skillfully uh, this really, really important tactic of nonviolent protest. And so for everyone who is going out there if you're defying curfew, if you're not defying curfew, if you are scared and intimidated by the uniforms in your neighborhood and on your streets, just remember they are citizens too, and you can talk to them as allies and friends. Uh, I will also share a uh, some words uh, that were captured on video this week, actually intentionally so. My colleague Eugene Scott at the Washington Post uh, recorded a great, uh, I guess about like a minute monologue or so uh, on TikTok, which I can't believe I'm actually recommending a TikTok. I just, yeah, things are very upside down right now. But take notes, people. <clears throat> I mean, it's crazy. I count me as a TikTok skeptic, but you should definitely look at it for for Eugene's comments. Um, but he talked uh, just at, at some length about the particular, uh, as he put it, the pressures and the weight that he feels uh, in doing his job as a reporter, as a journalist covering this moment and also his identity as a black man. And I just want to read a couple of passages from it because I thought he just so succinctly got it and put it in a way that I hadn't seen anybody put it uh, quite so clearly. But he said, uh, and you'll feel the pressure, this is as a reporter, uh, which I can sympathize with, uh, the pressure and the weight to be objective and fair and balanced, but it's almost impossible to completely separate yourself from the story. The reality is that I can't separate my identity as a black man from my work. So many of the topics that Americans are learning about right now are new to them, but they're new to them because historically the mainstream media hasn't been diverse enough to have members among itself to cover the abuse. Um, <clears throat> he goes on. I'm not going to steal all his thunder. He says it better than I can. But I really recommend this, particularly if you are someone who has ever been you know, sympathetic to but somewhat skeptical of the notion of identity politics or the frustrations or in some cases, as Eugene put it, the impossibility that people have of separating their identity, which is, I think, a word that gets used a lot and sometimes misunderstood from their work. Listen to what he has to say, and I think you'll get it. I really, really recommend it. And we'll put a link to it on the show page. Um, and speaking of the show, that's it. We made it through another we made it through another podcast, you guys. We're wow, here. we're still standing. We're all here, right? Okay, we're all here. That's good. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can get it our show page on lawfareblog.com. I don't know what merch we have to offer people this week. What do we have, Ben? Are there frozen are there are there lawfare water bottles there are, that you can drink, not there hurl? There are lawfare um special bill bar jowly like they're like you can hang them on your jowl water bottles and put out of them <laughs> while you're sauntering across they're very cool across it's like Lafayette Square ordering <laughs> the place vacated. <laughs>
As he surveys his troops. I'm just imagining Bill Barr with like the little hat with the two beers and the straws coming out of it as he's walking around being like, yeah, get these people out of here. Wow. I just totally broke it That's great. That is that is a delight. Somebody please out there, listeners, please make the meme. Just just internet, go make it for me. Love you guys so much. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook, of course. Whenever you download the podcast, please do make sure to leave a rating and review. We love hearing from you guys, and it really helps people find the podcast. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week uh, by Donald Trump. Trump, uh, Bill Barr, Mark Esper, and Mark Morgan. They're forming a new band. Uh, It's called Donald Trump and the Three Corinthians. Very good. I like it. I like it. The Bible. It's It's an oldie but goodie. Remember? Remember two Corinthians? Two Corinthians. Corinthians 2. That's right inside that that book. And the Bible. You like it? It's a long way to go for a joke. Sophia Yan would do it, though. You know, we need humor. It's worth searching for. <laughs> On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamar Coffin Wittes, and Shane Harris, we will talk to you next week. Be safe out there, everybody. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.